0: And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, this is April 20th. Tax day is come and gone. It's the 110th day of the year. 255 days remain to the year's over with. And since you all asked for holidays and National Observances Day, it's Chinese Language Day, National Lookalike Day, 420. International celebration during which people come together to consume cannabis, advocate for its legalization. College Student Grief Awareness Day. I was always sad when I had to go back to class. International Cli-Fi Day, uh, International Pizza Cake Day, Lima Bean Respect Day, I have no respect for Lima Beans, Lookalike Day, National Auctioneers Day, National Cheddar Fries Day, Yeah, National Death Doula Day, um, National High Five Day, National Pineapple Upside Down Cake Day, National Stop Snoring Day, or week rather, Un-Chinese Language Day, or that could be UN Chinese Language Day, I'm not sure which, Volunteer Recognition Day, well, in 1303 the Sapienza University of Rome is instituted by a papal bull of Pope Boniface VIII, 1653, Oliver Cromwell dissolves England's rump parliament. He took over. He refused the title of king, but he acted as a king. 1657, English Admiral Robert Blake destroys a Spanish silver fleet under heavy fire from the shore at the Battle of Santa Cruz de Tenerife. And Spanish silver fleets, if you can find one and salvage it, you're set for life. 1657, freedom of religion is granted to the Jews in New Amsterdam, which later became New York City. 1752, the start of Kanbong, Hathawadi War, a new phase in the Burmese Civil War. 1770, the Georgian king, the II, abandoned by his Russian ally, Count uh, Donalbin, was a victory over the Ottoman forces at Benzah. Uh, 1775 American Revolutionary War: The siege of Boston begins following the battles at Lexington and Concord. 1789 George Washington arrives at Grace Ferry, Philadelphia, while en route to Manhattan for his inauguration. 1792 France declares war against the King of Hungary and Bohemia. That was the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars. 1800 The September Republic is established. 1809, two Austrian Army Corps in Bavaria are defeated by the 1st French Empire Army led by Napoleon at the Battle of uh, Edmundsburg on the second day of a four-day campaign that ended in a French victory. 1828, René Khalil becomes the second non-Muslim to enter Timbuktu following Major Gordon Lang and also be the first to return alive. 1836, Congress passes night creating the Wisconsin Territory. 1861, American Civil War, Robert E. Lee resigned his commission in the U.S. Army in order to command the forces of the state of Virginia. Also on this date in 1861, Thaddeus S.C. Lowe, attempting to display the value of balloons makes a record journey, flying 900 miles from Cincinnati to South Carolina. 1862, Louis Pasteur and Claude Barnard complete the experiment disproving the theory of spontaneous generation. 1865, astronomer Angelo Secchi demonstrates the Secchi disk, which measures water clarity, uh, clarity aboard Pope Pius IX's yacht, the La Immaculata Concession, Immaculate Conception. 1876, the April uprising begins. Its suppression shocks European opinion, and Bulgarian independence becomes a condition for ending the Russo-Turkish War. Uh, 1884 Pope Leo XIII publishes the encyclical Humanum Genus, Condemning Freemasonry he was upset because he wouldn't let him join 1898, President William McKinley signs a joint resolution to Congress for a declaration of war against Spain beginning the Spanish-American War 1902, Pierre and Marie Curie refined radium chloride 1908, opening day of competition in the New South Wales Rugby League. 1914, 19 men, women, and children participating in a striker killed in the Ludlow Massacre during the Colorado Coalfield War. Now, for those not familiar with it, uh, it was perpetrated by an striking militia during the Colorado Coalfield War. Soldiers from the Colorado National Guard and private guards employed by Colorado Fuel and Iron Company attacked a tent colony of about 1,200 striking coal miners and their families in Ludlow, Colorado. About 21 people, including miners, wives, and children, were killed. John D. Rockefeller Jr., part owner of the uh, Colorado uh, Fuel and uh, hmm, oh, Fuel and Iron Company who had recently appeared before a U.S. congressional hearing on the strikes, was widely blamed for having orchestrated the massacre. It was the seminal event of the Coalfield War, which began with a General United Mine Workers of America strike against poor labor conditions. The strike was organized by miners working the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company and Victor American Fuel Company. Ludlow was the deadliest single incident during the Coalfield War. All righty, Uh, 1918, Manfred von Richthofen, also known as the Red Baron, shoots down his 79th and 80th victims, final victories before his death the next day. He also was one of the first to shoot down a UFO. 1922, the Soviet government creates a South Ossetian autonomous oblast within the Georgian uh, Soviet so, Soviet Socialist Republic. Nineteen forty-five, World War II. U.S. troops capture Leipzig, Germany, only to later cede the city to the Soviet Union. Uh, Truman would have cut off his right arm if it would have made Stalin happy. Nineteen forty-five, the Fuhrer bunker. On his fifty-sixth birthday, Adolf Hitler makes his last trip to the surface to award Iron Crosses to. Boy, soldiers of the Hitler Youth, and uh, for those that are interested in such things, as today is Hitler's birthday. 1945, twenty Jewish children used in medical experiments at uh, Nuremberg are killed in the basement of the Bullen-Hoser, uh down School. Had to hide the evidence, don't you know? forty-six The League of Nations officially dissolves on this date, giving most of its power to the United Nations. 1961, Cold War. of the Bay of Pigs invasion of U.S.-backed Cuban exiles against Cuba. Happened on this date. 1968, English politician Enoch Powell makes his controversial rivers of blood speech. Also on this date in 1968, South African Airways Flight 228 crashes near Hosea, Taco International Airport in Southwest Africa. Now Namibia, 123 people are killed. 1972, Apollo program. Apollo 16 lunar module, commanded by John Young and piloted by Charles Duke, lands on the moon. 1998, Air France Flight 422 crashes after taking off from El Dorado International Airport in Bogota, Colombia. Kills all 53 people on board. This date in 1999, Columbine High School massacre. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebo killed 13 and injured 24 before committing suicide at uh, Columbine High School in Columbine, Colorado. 2007, Johnson Space Center shooting. William Phillips barricades himself with a handgun in NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas for killing a male hostage and then killing himself. 2008, Danica Patrick wins the Indy Japan 300 becoming the first female driver in history to win an Indy car race. 2010 the Deepwater Horizon drilling rig explodes in the Gulf of Mexico kills 11 and begins an oil spill that will last six months. 2012 127 people are killed when a plane crashes in a red residential area near the Benizar Bhutto International Airport near Islamabad, Pakistan. 2013 A 6.6 magnitude earthquake strikes Lushan County, Yan'an, in uh, China's uh, Sichuan province, killing more than 150 people and injuring thousands. 2016, I'm sorry, 2015, 10 people are killed in a bomb attack on a convoy carrying food supplies to a UN compound in Garao in the Somali region of uh, Putlan. 2020. For the first time in history, oil prices dropped below zero in effect of the 2020 Russian Saudi Arabian oil price war. 2021, the state of Minnesota versus Derek Michael Chauvin. Derek Chauvin is found guilty on all charges and murder of George Floyd by the Fourth Judicial District Court of Minnesota. A chimpanzee could have won that case, such was the public opinion. Didn't matter. What the truth was. Everything was done for publicity's sake, which is a sad thing about uh, how all this was handled. Well, we talked yesterday about the Atlanta Ripper and the murder of Pat Garrett. Today we're going to talk about the murder of William Desmond Taylor who was a rather uh, powerful director. Now, in 1967, Hollywood director King Vidor took on the job of solving the mystery behind the 1922 murder of director William Desmond Taylor. And what he discovered was so explosive, he refused to reveal the identity of the killer. He still hasn't. You know, sometimes... Um, information is suppressed supposedly um, for the good of the country or the good of this or the good of that. More often than not, little money changed hands. At the time of the murder, which was in the early part of 1922. Uh, the murder of William Desmond Taylor was a major scandal in Hollywood. Now, Tinseltown had already begun to lose some of its glamour as audiences were beginning to tire of the silent films that were pouring out of Hollywood, and there had been several scandals involving well-known stars. Among these were a myriad of stories of excesses and drug use, as well as the influence of rape and murder trial of Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. And although the evidence was circumstantial in his case, and much of it seemed to prove Arbuckle had been enticed, his career was ruined as a result of the bad publicity alone. Now the religious leaders of the day, seeking to increase their own statute at everybody's expense, began to clamor for Hollywood to be cleaned up. And they shouted from the pulpits about the declining morals of Hollywood and threatened to boycott the movies due to what they called degenerate influences. Certainly the last thing that the studios needed at this point was another major scandal. Now, William Desmond Taylor was a well-known name in, in and among the studios of Hollywood. Recently from Ireland, Taylor's real name was William Cunningham Dean Tanner, had been born into Anglo-Irish gentry on April 26, 1872. One of five children of a retired British Army officer and the nephew of Home Rule Member of Parliament, Charles Kearns Dean Tanner. In 1890, after attending Marlborough College in England, Dean Tanner moved to Kansas and then moved to New York where he married Ethel May Hamilton in 1901. They had a daughter in 1902 or three. Nobody's really sure. In 1908, he vanished, abandoning his wife and daughter. Eventually, in 1912, his wife divorced him. Well, after uh, wandering the country... Dean Tanner came to Hollywood in 1912, changed his name, and established a very successful career as an actor and director in silent films. He starred in 27 movies and directed 59 others. By 1922, he was a major player in the world of the cinema. Well, the the mystery regarding his murder actually began February 1st, 1922. William Desmond Taylor was spending a pleasant evening at his home with silent film actress Mabel Norman, including Ms. Norman, the two had enjoyed a quiet evening, chatting, playing the piano, and enjoying some illicit cocktails. Remember, Prohibition was the rage. The ministers had won a major battle, getting alcohol banned. In spite of the banning of the alcohol during Prohibition, though, it was available in a number of locations especially if you were somebody of the stature of William Desmond Taylor. She said about 7.45, he had loaned her a book she wanted to read and walked her out to her car. She insisted that nothing out of the way took place during the time of her visit. Well, at about 8 p.m., neighbors heard what they thought was the sound of a car backfiring. 1922, with the number of early cars found in this affluent neighborhood, a backfiring car was not unusual. Just, I guess you could say, annoying. A neighbor by the name of Faith McLean, curious about the noise, glanced out the window and saw somebody wearing a long coat, a scarf, and a plaid hat come out of Taylor's home. This person saw Faith watching, smiled at her, and went back into Taylor's house. It appeared to McLean that this person who she claimed she didn't recognize had forgotten something and went back to get it. Well, another neighbor by the name of Hazel Gillum also heard the sound of what they thought was a uh, car backfiring and looked out her window. She also saw what she later described as a dark figure emerge from Taylor's home. I know she didn't recognize this figure, there was nothing that stood out about this unknown person, so she dismissed it and went on about her own business. Morning of February 2nd, 1922, William Desmond Taylor's assistant, um, Henry Peavy, arrived at Taylor's home. Unlocked the front door and entered, ready to start a new day in the movie business. But as soon as he walked into the living room, they came to a screeching halt. gaped at what he saw and ran into the courtyard screaming for help at the top of his lungs. What he had found was William Desmond Taylor Lymer. Well, as you might expect, Mr. Peavy was having a meltdown, having found a dead body once he calmed down, Noah, he called Paramount Studios instead of the police. In those early Hollywood days, the studios controlled everything with an iron fist. And the death of a permanent actor-director was certainly something that the studio wanted to be involved in. In fact, it was later found out that representative of the studio arrived at Taylor's home well before the police were even called. And while they ignored the body other than making sure nothing was in his pockets and needed to be removed. They did search the house thoroughly for anything that might reflect badly on Taylor or Paramount Studios, such as illicit booze, love letters, and any you know, incriminating the evidence they could find. Well, after they finished the search and gave the all-clear to Harvey Peavy, Uh, They also instructed him to thoroughly clean the house before he called the police. Now, nobody had any idea how many people actually tracked through the house, protecting Paramount Studio's reputation between the discovery of the body and the police arriving. There were several people present when the police investigators did arrive, but nobody admitted to removing anything from the house. Each expressed shock when the police discovered the death had not been a natural causes. In fact, Taylor had been shot in the back with a .38. And by the time the police began their investigation, all that could be determined was that William Desmond Taylor had been murdered sometime the night before and robbery was not the motive. Searching the body revealed he had a substantial amount of cash in his pocket and was wearing a valuable diamond ring on his finger. After interviewing those in the house and in the surrounding neighborhood, police arrived at a conclusion the sound of the car backfiring that a number of folks commented on was actually the sound of the shot that killed Taylor. During her interview with police, Faith McLean uh, told investigators the individual she'd seen leaving Taylor's home had been uh, what she described as funny-looking and appeared to be wearing heavy stage makeup and a classic burglar costume. She also said the figure had an effeminate walk. This opened up the possibility the killer might have been a woman disguised as a man. Well, Mabel Norman was questioned at length, since she was apparent that the last person other than the killer to see Taylor alive. In fact, she was initially considered to be a suspect, but police could determine neither a motive nor any firm evidence that she might have been the killer, it was determined that He was seeing quite a few women at the same time, and it was decided they were more likely suspects than Norman was. Police did discover that there was a possible and certainly scandalous, scandalous relationship between the actress and former child star Mary Miles Mintner, who was only 19 at the time of the murder. Taylor was 49 at that time. Everybody knew Mary Miles Mintner was Taylor's protege, but nobody could prove any illicit relationship although Mintner routinely introduced herself as Taylor's fiancée. Hollywood tabloids attempted to fabricate a steamy love affair between the two, but those who knew Taylor best claimed that Mary Miles Mintner had an obsessive but unrequited crush on Taylor. He tried to rid himself of to no avail. She would periodically show up at Taylor's house at all hours, clamoring to be let inside so she could be with him. It was also discovered that Mary Miles Mintner who was quite a looker, I must say, was possibly mentally unstable, having once tried to manipulate her family by faking a suicide with a gun about two years before Taylor's murder. Remember the investigators, uh, like Mary Miles Mentner for the killing, theorizing the person seen by the neighbors at 8 p.m. was not the killer, but that Mary had turned up at Taylor's house much later and threatened to kill herself. Um... unless Taylor wanted to return her affections. Of course, the presence of the mystery person at 8 p.m. does raise some questions. If Mabel Norman was telling the truth about leaving at 7.45 that night, according to Mabel, there was only herself and Taylor in the house till she left in her limo, and nobody admitted to seeing anybody else arrive, so how did this mystery person get to the house? Then, of course, is Mary Miles Mintler's mother, Charlotte Shelby, described described all who knew her as a rabid, money-grabbing stage mother known to be extremely protective of her daughter. It appeared to most that uh, to Charlotte, Mary was much more than a daughter. She was a source of income. If she got married, Charlotte would lose control of Mary's fortune. It was also reported she once pulled a thirty-eight on director Jack Kirkwood and actor Monty Bloom when she thought they were getting too close to her daughter. And there had been rumors that both men had indulged in romantic affairs with Mary well before she was 19. Police were especially interested when it was reported Charlotte had once gone to Taylor's house with a gun, threatening to kill him if he didn't leave her daughter alone. And those who were familiar with this, these, these incidents confirmed that Charlotte's weapon of choice was, in fact, a thirty-eight. In addition to the female suspects, there was a number of others that police felt had caused to want Taylor dead. He had been working hard to help Mabel Norman kick her addiction to cocaine, and he had offered to testify against her suppliers. Certainly, those supplying the star with her drugs, felt Taylor was interfering with something that was none of his business, and based on this, some felt that the killing had been a, a contract hit. And the police also looked at Henry Peavy, Taylor's assistant, and the one who originally discovered the body. Turned out he had a prior criminal record for lewdness, Now, in Hollywood at that time, being accused of lewdness was generally another way of saying one was homosexual. However, it was finally decided that the much more likely candidate was Williams' former assistant, Eddie Sands. Now, in the case of Eddie Sands, there were a number of rumors that Sands may have actually been Taylor's missing younger brother, Dennis Gage Dean Tanner. But nobody ever got around to proving this. And the fact that Taylor never prosecuted Sands um, was considered a support for the theory that Sands was actually his brother. Turns out Sands had been stealing from him. It was known that Sands had a long rap sheet, which included forgery and embezzlement. He was known to have also used a number of aliases. aliases, Yes, And then, uh, when needed, adopt a fake Cockney accent. Now, during his employment by Taylor, he'd crashed Taylor's car on a trip to Europe, been caught forging Taylor's name on checks, not to mention being caught stealing expensive items from Taylor's home. He'd been let go seven months before the murder and literally vanished. Well, primarily due to the meddling of Paramount Studios, complicated by the long list of potential suspects, the police never had a chance to solve this murder. Though they have been allegations and accusations nobody's ever been charged with the murder of William Desmond Taylor. It should be noted as a direct result of the murder of Taylor and the other scandals in the 1920s. Hollywood studios required their actors be bound by moral turpitude clauses in their contracts. Now it was rumored, as I said earlier, that King Vito discovered the identity of the killer but refused to reveal it. So this case could uh, still be solved if a proper investigation was conducted question is a hundred years later who would care well from William Desmond Taylor let's turn to Camden Town now the Camden Town murder took place in 1907 and though this murder took place over 20 years after the last Jack the Ripper murder there were many who believed this murder was either committed by Jack or a very clever copycat uh, perpetuated it, or perpetrated it. The victim in this case was one Emily Dimmock, also known to her clients as Phyllis. She is 23 years old, simply trying to make a living on the London streets around Camden Town. She had been born into a poor family in a small village in Hertfordshire. Most of her teenage years were spent working as a maid in various households in the Shire for very low, very low wages. 1903 or 1904, looking to make her fortune, Emily marshaled her courage, took her savings, and left her home and hurt for and moved to London. Found a room in a boarding house. Also allegedly, uh, it was a brothel run by a petty criminal by the name of John William Crabtree. And Under his tutelage, she began to apply her trade in what had been called the world's oldest profession on the streets of London to earn her keep. Well, she must have been fairly successful because by 1906, she was living in a flat on St. Paul's Road with her 19-year-old common-law husband, Bert Shaw. Couple home to get couple hoped to get permission of her, his parents to marry sometime soon. And as a condition of marriage, Emily had to promise to give up working as a prostitute and lead a respectful life as a wife and hopefully soon a mother. Now, Bert wasn't a wealthy man, but he had a steady job as an overnight chef on the the Midland Railway. And although Emily apparently really did long for domestic stability, she spent the last four years earning her keep on her back, so to speak, and it was hard for her to give up her wild, restless ways. She missed the drinking in the pubs, the bright lights, and, of course, soliciting men. And then, too, her paramour worked all night from 4.30 in the afternoon to 11.30 in the morning. When he was home, he was tired and wanted to sleep. She was lonely, being left alone almost all day, and really wasn't getting enough attention, in her opinion. And the temptation proved to be too great. She began to step out most evenings without burst knowledge. She could be found in the bars along Houston Road. Well, one of these bars, the one called The Rising Sun, Emily met a glassware designer by the name of Robert Wood about September 6th. During the investigation, the witnesses claimed that Emily and Wood had known each other for a long time, while Wood maintained it had only just met. The two were sharing a drink at the Rising Sun that Friday, September 6th. After Emily left, he prepared a postcard on which he wrote, Phyllis, darling, if it pleases you to meet me at 8.15 at the Rising Sun, yours to a sender. He signed the card to Alice to allay any suspicions if the card happened to be seen by Burt Shaw and he apparently mailed his postcard either Sunday or Monday and it arrived at Emily's residence on or uh, before the 11th of September. In the interim, Emily had passed the time entertaining another client by the name of Robert Percival Roberts, a cook. On Wednesday, September 11th, she was seen at the Rising Sun and at a bar called The Eagle in the company of Robert Wood. Now, on Thursday morning, September 12th, at about 11 a.m., Burt mother arrived at her son's home. And that's never a good thing. Most sources let her claim she'd come to give her a blessing to the marriage of Emily and Bert. But when she knocked, there was no answer. The landlady of the building, to which um, Bert and Emily had their flat, knew Ms. Shaw and let her into the common area to wait for either Bert or Emily to come home. No sign of Emily, but Bert arrived home about 30 minutes after his mother got there. Well, when they went into the flat, they saw Emily Dimmock naked on the bed, her throat slashed from ear to ear. Blood from her wounds still covered the walls. Forensic examination, such as it was, later determined she'd been murdered during her sleep sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Ensuing examination also revealed that though the flat appeared to have been ransacked, nothing had been taken from the flat except Emily's keys. So that actually led out robbery as a motive and most of Emily's postcard collection was scattered on the floor. Now, two of Bert's straight razors were found next to the sink along with a bloody towel, and it appeared the killer tried to wash both the razors as well as his hands before leaving the flat and very carefully locking up behind him. When the details of the murder were made public, there was a general hue and cry due to the fact that many of the details were similar to those from the Ripper killings. In fact, the media coverage rivaled that given to the Ripper killings in 1888. story and all the things that made a editor salivate, a beautiful young victim, lots of sex, and many salacious details about the sore underbelly of London society. Unnaturally, suspicion fell almost at once on the glassware designer, Robert Wood. Evidence seemed to prove he was the last one to see Emily alive. Bert Shaw had come across the postcard that Robert had sent to Emily in. Once the tabloids published a picture of the card, the uh, handwriting was immediately identified as Robert's by his ex-girlfriend, a young lady by the name of Ruby Young. And if this didn't cause enough trouble for Robert, Ruby told police Robert to come to her and ask her to, uh, to tell authorities they still saw each other on Monday and Wednesday evenings. Well, Based on this information and actually needing to make an arrest, to pacify the tabloids, Robert Wood was arrested for the murder of Emily Dimmock. Frankly, under the prosecution's theory, the case was very straightforward. They claimed on the evening of Wednesday, September 11th, Emily met Robert Wood as pr- planned at the Rising Sun. They'd gone to the Eagle where they were seen by multiple witnesses. After this, according to prosecutors, the couple had gone to Emily's flat where they had sex. Emily fell asleep, and for some unknown reason, Robert killed Emily by slashing her throat. Then he searched the flat for the postcard sent center and, failing to find it, let himself out and locked up using her keys. Well, the evidence against Robert continued to pour in. Emily's former landlord, John Crabtree, came forward to claim that Robert Wood used to visit Emily all the time when she lived in his boarding house. Now, this, of course, contradicted Robert's statement he'd only just met Emily on the 6th. To make matters worse, a number of other witnesses came forward to say that Robert and Emily had been seen together many times prior to the 6th of September. Well, a neighbor of Emily's by the name of Robert McCowan claimed he'd seen a man in the street near the Shaw house a few minutes before 6 a.m. on the morning of the murder. This man had a very odd gait left hand held stiffly in his pocket, the right shoulder uh, jerking in time with his right foot. And according to authorities, this was the identical gait displayed by Robert Wood. And all this evidence, coupled with Ruby Young's testimony, Robert tried to use her to manufacture an alibi, made his conviction for the murder of Emily Demick all that more certain. Well, there's an old saying don't couch your chickens before they hatch. And the same can be said for murder convictions. The defense raised a number of issues that began to make the case look less certain as to uh, Robert's guilt. First of all, Emily received a letter in the mail. Oddly enough, she burned the letter after reading it. Investigators found only a few scraps when they examined the ashes in the fireplace. However, Robert Percival Roberts, another of her clients who had admitted he spent three nights with her prior to her death, said that she had shown him the letter before she burned it. It was addressed to Phyllis, her professional name, if you will, and said, Will you meet me at the Bar of the Eagle in Camden Town, 830 tonight, Wednesday? And it was signed, Bert. Now, Emily's common-law husband was named Bert, but he was... Surprisingly enough, never a suspect in her murder. And besides, if he wanted to meet her, he'd meet her at home. Finally, at eight thirty in the evening, he was still at work, and there was no evidence he took the night off. So if Robert Percival Roberts was telling the truth, then one of Emily's men was either named Bert or used Berta as a pseudonym. Besides, if the letters from Herbert, why would she have burned it in the fireplace? It was often thought since Robert Percival Roberts was a suspect himself, he might have made up the contents of the letter to clear himself, though uh, nobody knew why, cause he did have an alibi. Well, Robert Wood was represented at trial by one of the most celebrated litigators in that time period, Edward Marshall Hall, and he literally tore the prosecution's case to shreds. Now, regard to whether or not Robert Wood knew Emily for a long period of time hall said that wood simply didn't want his ill father to know was consorting with prostitutes and as to wood seeing emily the night she was uh, murdered that was true after spending some time with her to eagle he went to visit his sick father and a witness testified robert wood arrived at his father's home shortly before midnight and stayed the balance of the night Well, as for the testimony of his ex-girlfriend that he had asked her to lie for him to create an alibi, Hall pointed out it wasn't for the time of the murder, just for the evening. He already had an alibi for the time of the murder. And Hall also established that Wood's Gate wasn't really unusual to several other men with similar gates, could be seen walking the streets every day. In fact, a boxer by the name of William Westcott came forward to testify he had a similar gate and had actually been in the area at about 6 a.m. on the day in question. So it was probably him that Robert McCowan had seen, and not Robert Wood. And as a final gesture, Robert Wood took to stand, and though he didn't, uh, though he didn't particularly impress the jury, his defense certainly did. Took the jury less than fifteen minutes to find Wood not guilty. Even a judge gave the opinion in the prosecution had fallen well short of proving their case against Wood. So now we're back to the question of who killed Emily Dimmock. Due to the nature of her profession, there could have been ten or a hundred other potential suspects. She could have run into a former client, or maybe it was a new client that killed her. Many suspected Robert Percival Roberts was the killer. However, both his friend and his landlady testified he was in his own flat the entire night of the murder. During his own testimony, John Crabtree mentioned an individual he knew only as Scotty who would come around the boarding house and threatened both himself and Emily with a straight razor. He claimed that Scotty claimed uh, that Emily had ruined his life. However, police were never able to identify Scotty. Now Crabtree also mentioned a name the name of a man by the name of Robert Mackey, also known as Scotch Bob. This man, he testified, used to spend a great deal of time with Emily. Police investigated Mackin at first believed he'd been in Scotland at the time of the murder, but then they found out that the dates he claimed he'd been in Scotland were not correct. However, for whatever reason, police never followed up on this suspect. They had their killer. Two other witnesses, uh, Ms. Sharpies and uh, Mr. Harvey, testified they'd seen Emily around midnight on the night of her murder at King's Cross, accompanied by a big man who wasn't Robert Wood. Police were never able to identify this man either. Apparently, the Keystone Cops have a British uh, extension. In spite of the numerous witnesses and the continuing list of suspects, there was a never-ending stream of theories regarding the murder. One of the most interesting was that it was actually the work of Jack the Ripper. In this theory, it was alleged that Jack was actually Walter Sickert, a renowned artist of the day. Sickert had been suspected by many of being Jack the Ripper, and he lived near Emily's flat and demonstrated a fascination for her murder. Now, it is true Sickert was one of many suspected of being Jack the Ripper, but it was never proven. It's also true Sickert was fascinated with Emily's murder, but the primary evidence against him was a series of paintings and sketches showing clothed men sitting near or standing over a naked women. To add fuel to this particular fire in 2002, crime writer Patricia uh, Cornwell wrote a book that not only accused Sicker of being Jack the Ripper, but also alleged that he killed Emily Dimmock as well. She claimed that many of his paintings bore an uncanny resemblance to the Ripper crime scenes. Now, her theories were somewhat discredited when she was accused of having destroyed one of his paintings while trying to obtain DNA to prove he committed the murders. Certainly, proving Walter Sicker was Jack the Ripper and also committed a Camden Town murder would have been a major feather in any investigator's cap. However, the chance that the same person committed both the Ripper murders and killed Emily Dimicus Slim, after all, it must be remembered there was a 20 year gap between the, the last certain Ripper murder and the death of the young prostitute. Additionally, there were some other similarities and there were also a number of differences. Of course, a thorough forensic examination just might reveal some clues that haven't been previously revealed. I guess you would have to ask, who knows? Only the shadow. Well, you know, we've written many, many um, stories of unsolved murders. Now one of the, my favorite though, which we did some time back, but it bears repeating, dealt with Jack the Axe Now murders are difficult to solve when there's clear motive in a known suspect. But when there's absolutely no motive and not even an inkling of an idea as to who the suspect might be, Solving a murder is almost impossible. Now, everybody's heard about Jack the Ripper, also called the Whitechapel murderer, as well as Leather Apron. This was the the names given to an unidentified serial killer who terrorized, terrorized the Whitechapel section of London in 1888. Now, the Whitechapel area of London in the 1880s was something of a world unto itself. Overcrowded. Terrible work and living conditions. When I went there in the uh, 1980s, it still wasn't a place I would uh, go without watching my back. Even the very atmosphere of the, of the area aided the actions of this mysterious killer who slipped through the rainy, foggy London nights prowling through the winding, dingy streets to ambush his next victim. And though most writers claim that uh, Jack the Ripper killed only five, only the five best-known prostitutes uh, linked to him by popular legend is actually eleven or more murders actually linked to him by the police. The police refer to these killings as the Whitechapel murders. They don't refer to it as Jack the Ripper's murders. There's also evidence they may have killed several more than reported before vanishing into the mist and fog of London. And all these associated murders demonstrated the same modus operandi that became known as the Ripper's trademark. Throat slashed, abdominal and genital areas mutilation, uh, removal of internal organs and facial mutilation. Just as today, in the mid-1800s, London was receiving a major influx of immigrants from numerous other countries that swelled the population of London beyond belief. Whether it was immigrants from Ireland or Jewish refugees escaping the, the programs in Tsarist Russia, these newcomers, mostly poor, some with just a clothes on their backs, swelled the population of the poor neighborhoods almost to the bursting point. It's from these struggling immigrants that poured into the ever-growing slums that Jack the Ripper chose his victims, committing increasingly gruesome murders till they inexplicably vanished to the history. Or did he? Across the oceans, Orleans, Louisiana, the early 1900s, was almost a world unto itself. And though it's a major city of the southern United States, it is and always has been, unlike any other city in the country, primarily due to its French-Cajun rouge. French Quarter has long been known as an area where dreams are born and you can lose yourself in the sounds of music to be heard in a few other places. There's also an aura of mystery and delicious danger that overlies the city as, as practitioners of voodoo and the, you know, the black arts work side by side with those who strive to modernize this steadily growing city. I mean, New Orleans was the home of the mysterious and lovely Marie Laveau called the Queen of Voodoo who held the entire city in the palm of One delicate hand for several decades. As a major coastal city, New Orleans also boasts an atmosphere unlike few other locations. The night can range from hot and sultry to cool and moist as your skin is caressed by cool ocean breezes if you're lucky enough to live close to the shore or hot and muggy in the winding streets of the growing city. In short, it's literally unlike any place else, and that may well have been part of the reason New Orleans had its own mystery killer. Interestingly enough, uh, chose his victims from among the more prosperous Italian immigrants. Was it simply a coincidence that Jack the Axe Man, as many came to call this mysterious killer, chose his victims from among those who came to this country seeking a better life? Most believe they only killed Italian grocers, but uh, in actuality, he killed individuals uh, from other professions as well. Even more interesting was the reaction of neighbors who wanted to get involved in these tragedies. These murders gave neighbors and victims a chance to settle scores, real or imagined, with those unfortunate enough to get caught up in the tragedy as well. And of course, there was the media, Fanning the flames, accusing, trying, and convicting those suspected of being the culprits in the newspapers without any more evidence than the police had. And like the killings attributed to Jack the Ripper, the first killing by Jack the Axeman raised the eyebrows of the victim's social set, but it didn't provoke the fear that additional murders, murders would later cause. should be considered at the backdrop for these murders, was the fact that there was a world war raging in Europe in 1918 and a lot of American soldiers were there. As a result, most of the attention of not only the city but the world was focused on the, the war news. In the beginning, more attention was paid to the war news and to the news closer to home. So what would become a reign of terror in this city caught between two worlds, as it were, began on the night of May twenty third, 1918. or the hours of May 24th, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, an Italian immigrant couple who ran a small grocery, were discovered in their beds. Dead. They'd been assaulted with their own axe that had been taken from their own back... Excuse me, their own backyard. Their throats had also been sliced with a razor. In fact, Miss Maggio's throat had been slashed so deeply, her head almost severed from her body. Killing off the uh, the razor. lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Subsequent investigation revealed that nothing appeared to have been stolen. Police, Mr. Maggio, beneath Mr. Maggio's pillar was over $100 in cash from his store. In 1918, it was a considerable sum of money, let me tell you. The killer also ignored Mr. Maggio's jewelry or on a dresser, also apparently entered and left the combination home store by chiseling out a panel from the rear door. In another similarity to the Ripple case, a handwritten message was found written on the sidewalk near the Maggio home. And it said "Mr. Maggio was going to sit up tonight, just like Ms. Tony. Never discovered who wrote that message. Well, then their enthusiasm quickly closed the case, and based on the unsupported word of a neighbor that he had seen, Andrew Maggio, Joseph's brother, come home between 2 and 3 in the morning, both Andrew and Jake, Maggio's brothers, who also lived in the combination home business, were arrested on literally no evidence other than they lived in the same house. Well, to the embarrassment of the police, both had to be shortly released. Long-time members of the police force and some reporters, to be sure, remember in 1911, three other Italian grocers had been murdered by an axe-wielding killer. In two of the cases, their wives had also been murdered. The uh, victims were identified as Crudy, Rossetti, and Tony Chambra. Now, more recent research has failed to find any killings of victims by these names, but There were those that thought that uh, Ms. Ms. Tony, uh, in the message, found on the sidewalk referred to Tony Chalbry's wife. Cases were never solved, as I said. Should be noted there were a number of problems with the investigation of this case. The detective placed in charge of the Maggio case was killed by a burglary suspect, so a new lead detective had to be assigned who was unable to find the numerous leads mentioned to the press by his predecessor. Now, such with the barrage of lurid headlines from the battlefields of France that filled the front page of the local papers that by the time of the second attack, most people had forgotten about the first attack. June of 1918, a Polish immigrant by the name of Louis Bessemer and his paramour, Harriet Lowe, were attacked in their bed with an axe taken from their yard by a mysterious killer. Now, it was interesting It was hard to know if the neighbors were more shocked to find out the couple were living in sin or that there had been an attack. Uh, In those days, um, a lot of couples apparently uh, took the cheap way out and had uh, common-law marriages. And, of course, neighbors never knew. Just as in the first killing, a panel had been removed from the door to allow the killer to enter, and once again, nothing was stolen from the home or the business. Victims had their throat slashed and their faces were mutilated, though whether intentionally as a result of the attack was uncertain. However, in this instance, both the victims survived the attack, although Harriet Lowe died of her injuries later. Now, Lowe's behavior was odd, to say the least. Though she professed not to know the identity of her assailant, she first accused Bessemer of trying to kill her and then said he was a German spy. District Attorney, under intense pressure to solve the axe murder, based on what he called a Deathbed station statement by Lowe, ignoring the similarities between this attack and the Maggio murders, charged Bessemer with the murder of Lowe when she died two months after the attack. While he didn't accuse Bessemer of the earlier murder of Maggio, he certainly did nothing to discourage such talk among the citizens in New Orleans. Unfortunately, the district attorney charging Bessemer with the murder of Lowe didn't stop the real Jack the Axe Man. Now though the DA brought Bessemer to trial for the murder of Lowe, he was acquitted, leaving a DA with egg on his face. And there had been a rumor that the Mafia was involved in the Maggio killing since they were Italian, and, but since Bessemer was not Italian, it's not of inquiry. It fell short. On its face, the Bessemer case did seem tied to the Maggio murders. First witness, John Zunka, arrived at the Bessemer grocery in the early hours of June 28, 1918, to deliver bread and cakes. He found a panel of the door had been carved out, so he pounded on the door until the groggy Louis Bessemer, blood streaming from a bloody head wound, answered the door. Z- uh, Zanka pushed past him and uh, discovered Lowe in her bed with a very bloody wound on her head. While well, in the hospital, Harriet Lowe made the statements about Bessemer being a German spy, which brought in the federal government. He let her clear to being a spy. should be understood the only evidence ever submitted Bessemer was guilty of anything with Lowe's completely unsupported statements and the enthusiasm of the police to make an arrest. They didn't care who they arrested as long as they made an arrest. And Lowe began to talk about the attacks. She said Bessemer was sitting at a desk working on his accounts when she went to the kitchen. And according to her story, was while she was checking on some prunes, she had been cooking and she blacked out. She believed she had been attacked in the kitchen. Her body was moved. Uh, she remembered nothing of the attack. She didn't even remember going to bed. Then she said, in spite of not remembering going to bed, she remembered waking up in the bed and seeing a man standing over her, making some sort of, sort of motions with his hand. And, and then she saw the axe. At that point, she said she screamed. She gave a brief description of the man she saw standing over her bed. He was tall and heavy set. She also certain he was a white man with dark brown hair that stood almost on the end. He was wearing a white shirt open at the neck. Next thing she remembers, waking up on the the gallery with her face in a pool of blood. Of course, in the next interview, her sword changed in several major respects. In spite of the continually changing narrative, the police dutifully followed up on every allegation she made, to include one that Bessemer was the man that tried to kill her. How much of these uh, changes were due to the urging of the police and how much was based on her inability to think, clearly after the head injury, was never um, discussed. And based entirely on her statements was some relief. Police decided Bessemer's case was not an x attack, but then Bessemer himself had inflicted his own wounds in order to cover up trying to kill Harriet Lowe. Now, it has to be remembered, it's before the age of forensic science when a policeman's gut feelings solved cases, whether they were correct or not. really wasn't a concern. Closing cases, especially high-profile cases, was the order of the day, especially in regard to the x Unfortunately, the jury didn't agree with the uh, the policeman's guts. There were a few other interesting tidbits that came to light during the Bessemer case. Harriet Lowe became the center of a media circus as she continually made scandalous and then often false statements re- relating to both the attacks and the character of Louis Bessemer. Hans Hume sensationalized Lowe in her outspoken nature upon discovering she wasn't the wife of Bessemer but his mistress. A charity hospital source discovered the scandal... When Bessemer asked to be directed to the Luma, Ms. Harriet Lowe was inevitably denied access as no woman by that name was present. Bessemer's legal wife arrived in Cincinnati in the days, from Cincinnati in the days following the discovery, which further inflamed the ongoing dilemma. Lowe further gained media attention as she repeatedly made statements that voiced her dislike of the New Orleans chief of police as well as her reluctance to comply with police questioning. After the truth of her marital status was revealed publicly, she told reporters from the Times-Picayune she no longer aided the police in their investigation, as she suspected it had been Chief uh, Mooney who had informed the press of the scandal. Well, despite the scandal and her delirious statements, suggesting suggested Bessemer was a German spy, Low returned to the home, she said, with Bessemer weeks after the attack. One side of her face was partially paralyzed due to the severity of the attack, she died August 5th, 1918, just two days after doctors uh, performed surgery in an effort to repair her partially paralyzed face. And just prior to her death, Lowe told authorities she suspected it was Louis Bessemer who attacked her. Well, Bessemer spent nine months in jail before being released by a jury. It took only ten minutes to reach a verdict. Investigation was sabotaged. The two of the investigators were demoted. Well, we're going to finish talking about Jack the Axe Man tomorrow. Until then, this is Ken Hodno for the Ken Hodno Show saying have a truly great evening.